All right, so we are in, we are continuing our series on Exodus, and if you are unfamiliar with Exodus, I'm just going to take a moment just to summarize the story so far. So Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and like Jacob after Esau, it follows right on the heels of Genesis, and in the book of Genesis, God chooses one man named Abraham and tells him to leave his family and his homeland and go to a place far away. God promises that he will make a name for Abraham and promises that through his family, blessing might come to the scattered nations of the world. And this promise of blessing for the nations through Abraham's family becomes one of the main backbones of the entire story of the Bible. In fact, I believe it plays a key role in the chapters that we'll be looking at today. Um, the children of Abraham, known as the Israelites or the Hebrews, eventually move to Egypt. And uh, they do that to escape a famine, but after many years of living peacefully, the ruler of Egypt begins to fear their growing numbers, and so he enslaved the Hebrew people and tries to kill all the newborn boys by drowning them in the Nile, but he is not able to kill all of them because when Moses is born, he is preserved through the waters of the Nile, and in an ironic twist, he is adopted into the royal palace. But when he is 40 years old, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave and strikes and kills the Egyptian. Moses is now a fugitive, and so he flees to the land of Midian, and 40 years pass. And at that point, out of nowhere, God appears to him in a burning bush, revealing to Moses his name, Yahweh, and telling him a message of hope. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has heard the cries of his people, seen their oppression, and he knows their pain. And it has gone on far too long, and now he is ready to rescue his children um, and rescue the children of Abraham. And as Ashlyn mentioned in her sermon a couple weeks ago, this would have been great news for any Israelite, right? They would have been pumped to hear that finally freedom has, is on the way. But Moses at first hesitates to be partners with Yahweh. Now I feel that how the story of Moses usually gets told is that, yes, Mo Moses had his moment of doubt at the burning bush, but once that scene is all done, Moses is able to embrace his identity and heads to Egypt without any further doubts. The, he, that square-faced jaw, or square-jawed face is just, it's set like a flint, and nothing is going to stop him from, uh, from changing his mind. But as we continue our journey through Exodus today, I'm going to point out that while I believe his hesitation actually carries forward into the story, Moses is just not done doubting quite yet. And last week, Nathan looked at a passage after the burning bush, um, which he mentioned briefly, and it can only be described as a bedtime story in content, and, or in, in setting, but not in content. It's a story of a quick-thinking wife, a flint knife, and a divine demand on Moses' life. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I thought about that for a bit. Uh, Nathan did a great job of tackling that passage, and so if you didn't hear it and are curious about what happened, I'd highly recommend you give that sermon a listen because I am not touching those verses with a 10-foot snake, I mean pole. Um, if you have your Bible, though, I'd invite you to just flip it open to Exodus chapter 5. We'll start um, working our way forward, and all scripture that I'll be using um, in my slides are taken from the New American Standard Version, but I've just modified it slightly. Um, I, I, I've replaced the title, The Lord in all caps, with the name Yahweh. 
And translators title the Lord in all caps because of a long-standing tradition of not wanting to misuse God's name. But we have just read a story where God gives Moses his name. And if I introduced myself and said, hi, my name is Greg. I'm an MLS coordinator with, at, with the real estate board office. It would be a little odd for you to then call me MLS coordinator from then on out. Um, in the same way, I feel that God shares his name with Moses because he wants him to use his name. And so while I, I can understand why we tend to refer to the God of Israel as the Lord or simply as God with a capital G, for the rest of this sermon, out of respect for God's words to Moses in the story of the burning bush, I'm going to try to call him by the name he gave to Moses. And I've adjusted the scriptures slightly to reflect this Hebrew name that is veiled by our English translation. All right, so we've got seven chapters to go. So let's get rolling with a question for you guys. So for those familiar with the story of the Exodus, when it comes to those three signs that Yahweh gives Moses at the burning bush, which are one, the changing of the staff into a snake, two, the changing of Moses' hand from normal to diseased and then back again, um, and then three, the sign of taking the water from the Nile and turning that drawn water into blood. When it comes to these three signs, who were they originally intended for? Anybody? Just throw out your gut response. It's a bit of a trick question, but anybody? Pharaoh, good. A brave soul. Thank you. Thank you. That's actually the exact answer I was looking for. Yeah, so normally I, I would have said Pharaoh as well, right? Pharaoh and his court, especially the sign of the staff turning into the snake and the Nile water turning into blood. Like, we've, we've seen the prince of Egypt, right? Like, we've, we've seen that scene happen. And those two uh, magicians being like, we're playing with the big boys now or whatever the song that was. Um, and so, yeah, like, that would be normally how I would answer that as well. But actually, that never, um, the, the, the sign about the turning the hand into leprous might tip you off a bit because that actually never happens in front of Pharaoh. So what's with these signs and who, who are they intended for? Well, if we, if we look back, we'll see that um, Moses specifically asked for the signs because he says, what if they will not believe or listen to what I say? For they may say, Yahweh has not appeared to you. And normally, I would have said, um, uh, in the past, I would have read that as Moses asking, what if the Egyptians, right, will not believe me? But Yahweh specifically says the sign of the staff turning into a snake is so that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So this can't be the Egyptians. It's actually uh, Yahweh is the God of the, uh, of the fathers of the Israelites, not the Egyptians. So if we look back to chapter 3, Yahweh says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together, then they will pay attention to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt. So it's the elders of Israel that these signs were originally for. And so this kind of puzzled me when I saw this. It, it, why is God focusing on the elders of Israel? And why does that fact get forgotten when the story gets retold, right? Uh, and I think a part of the reason why it's forgotten is that we only get a few brief verses of Moses' encounter with the elders at the end of chapter 4. It says, Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which Yahweh had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people, so the people believed, and when they heard that Yahweh was concerned about the sons of Israel, he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshipped. It's a very short little passage 
But this is where Moses and Aaron perform the three signs of the transforming snake, hand, and water. And what do the elders do in response? They bow low and worship. They give the right response that Moses should have given at the burning bush. They are pumped that finally God, Yahweh, is going to come and save them. But the first verse of chapter 5 gives me a bit of pause. It says, And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go so that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. Does anything there sound off to you at all? Anyone? Well, I had, to, I had to read it again before I saw it, but it says, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, and it makes no mention of the elders. And it could be that the writer of Exodus forgot to add that detail, but from what I've learned about biblical writers is that they're very careful with what words they add and what words they don't write. And so remember how God commands Moses to go to the elders in order to bring them to Pharaoh, right? He says, then they will pay attention to what you say, and you with the elders will come to the king of Egypt. And yet the very first verse in Pharaoh's courtroom makes no mention of them joining Moses and Aaron. So with just Moses and Aaron standing before Pharaoh, Pharaoh responds. He says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh rightfully questions who this God named Yahweh is. Pharaoh's probably thinking, okay, I know Osiris, I know Horus and Seth, but Yahweh? I have no idea who that is. Which region is he from? You know? And so now this is where I would expect that Moses would just really lay it into Pharaoh. Um, Yahweh has shared his game plan with Moses already. Moses knows that great miracles are coming where Yahweh is going to use his power over the Egyptians. This is Moses' chance to let Pharaoh know that, hey, a storm is coming. But read what Moses and Aaron say. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Otherwise, he will strike us with a plague or with sword. What about this verse? Is there anything that strikes you as a little odd in this one? Anyone? So they say that Yahweh is going to use a plague or a sword to strike who? The Hebrews, right, yeah. So where did that thought come from? And how also is that even supposed to convince Pharaoh to let them go? I can just imagine Pharaoh thinking, perfect. You know, this actually solves a problem that my family's been having for years and years. Um, we've actually been trying to lower your population and have been quite unsuccessful. But if God is willing to do it for us, then that's, that's great. Let him strike you, right? So this is absolutely not what Yahweh told Moses to say. It is Egypt that Yahweh plans to strike, not the Israelites. And in chapter 3, Yahweh specifically says, I know that the king of Israel will not permit you to go, except under compulsion. So I will reach out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it, and after that, he will let you go. It's as if Moses and Aaron see Pharaoh is not responding well, and so they start to backpedal a bit, not willing to proclaim it is the Egyptians who will be in trouble if Pharaoh does not let them go, instead taking that blame onto themselves. But Moses knows Pharaoh is going to be unwilling at first. Yahweh specifically predicts that Pharaoh will have a hard heart, 
and actually gives Moses authority to perform wonders. In chapter 4, 21, it says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And yet, in spite of this authority, Moses does not appear to have brought the elders, and instead of performing any signs before Pharaoh, they instead seem to take the blame for Pharaoh's disobedience. Needless to say, this does not end well because Pharaoh is ticked with Moses and Aaron that they would stop the people from working so that they can head out to the wilderness and worship their God. And in response, he makes the people's work harder by not giving them straw uh, to be used to help stabilize the bricks that they are making. He is intentionally making the life of the Israelites harder. Even the Hebrew foreman who would have only gotten those, that position if they had found favor in the sight of the Egyptians, even they are abused. It says, Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and asked, Why have you not completed your task of making bricks either yesterday or today as before? And so the foremen cry out to Pharaoh, but he is unmoving. And so when they leave Pharaoh, the Hebrew foremen invoke Yahweh's name over Moses and Aaron, but not in blessing. It says, When they left Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them, and they said to them, May Yahweh look upon you and judge you, because you have made us repulsive in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses then turns to Yahweh, and I can understand why he's frustrated. You know, Yahweh specifically told him, Hey, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And now these foremen have specifically said to Moses and Aaron, you, you have made us repulsive in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants. So Moses approaches Yahweh and says, Yahweh, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. And at first glance, this verse might seem okay, but look when I add some emphases, um, and look and see where is Moses putting the blame. I'm going to read it over again. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Yahweh, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. There is no we or our people, and it reminds me of another man in the Bible who found himself in trouble and said, the wife you gave me she gave me fruit, and I ate it. Right? There is, there, and let's not forget, this is Moses, the very man who has seen a burning bush, but it's not been consumed. He has had his staff change into a snake and then grabbed it by the tail, and it changed back. He has put his hand, healthy hand into his jacket and pulled it out diseased and turned it back again. And he has drawn water from the Nile and changed the drawn water into blood. And some of these he has done twice, once on the mountain and once he performed them before the elders. And yet now he is demanding that Yahweh explain himself for why he has brought harm to the Hebrews. It seems that it's not just Pharaoh's heart that is hard, that needs softening. And how does Yahweh respond to Moses' doubts? Does he say, you know what, Moses? I'm kind of done with this negative attitude. Why don't you make like a staff and slither away? No, instead we see God responds gently. He says, at the beginning of chapter 6, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of this land. God spoke further to Moses and said, 
I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as strangers. Furthermore, I have heard the groanings of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the labors of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the labors of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. And almost every single line in this speech of Yahweh's has already actually been said to Moses back at the burning bush. And sometimes just in the face of our circumstances, we just need to be reminded of what we already know. And this is why every Sunday, except for this one, we take part in the ritual of the Lord's Supper, right? Where we eat a piece of bread and, a small, and drink a small cup of grape juice to remind us what Jesus has done for us. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, not because he knew our faith in his death and resurrection would be unshakable, but because he knew we have a tendency to forget. And Yahweh really only adds one new line into the speech, and that is, then I will take you as my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out from under the labors of the Egyptians. This is about truly knowing Yahweh by name, and that he is on our side. And so with these words, Moses gets the courage to approach the representatives of Israel again, but... Things do not go well. So Moses said this to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. And here we see the news of Yahweh's rescue has fallen like a seed in a rocky place. And though they had first received the news with joy, bowing low and worshiping, now there is no firm root, and affliction and persecution has caused the hope and the joy to fall away. The environment is not allowing their faith to grow. So Yahweh then tells Moses to go to Pharaoh. But just like the Israelites, his faith, Moses' faith in Yahweh, continues to waver. It says, But Moses spoke before Yahweh, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me, as I am unskilled in speech? And we've heard this before, (laughs) right? Nevertheless, Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them the command concerning the sons of Israel and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And then the author of Exodus gives us a little bit of whiplash because if you're reading along in your text, you'll see that next he follows this with a genealogy that focuses on the sons of Levi, the line that Moses and Aaron are from. This almost feels like one of those kind of like, we'll be back in a moment, don't touch that dial. You know, this program has been brought to you by Ancestry.com. Connect to the people and places in your past. Um, But actually, when I thought about this random genealogy that got put here, it struck me that It's almost like the author is responding to Moses' doubts by saying, you think you are unworthy. Look at what family you are a part of. You are a son of Abraham, a child of Levi, in the family of God. And then to bookend the genealogy, the author shows that Yahweh does not respond in frustration to Moses' concern over his ability. Instead, he gently tells Moses and Aaron what they are to do. If we flip forward to Exodus 7, 8 to 10, says, Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Work a miracle, 
Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, so it may turn into a serpent. Then look at how they respond. It says, so Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, and so they did, just as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron threw his staff down before Pharaoh and his servants, and it turned into a serpent. And I love that. So they did just as the Lord commanded. And the author of Exodus is actually even a bit more eager because he actually already spoiled Moses and Aaron's disobedience in verse 7, right before this. I love how he puts it here. It says, so Moses and Aaron did this. As the Lord commanded, so they did. Moses, 80 years old, and Aaron, 83, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Two aged men are now boldly stepping out in faith. Just like when, when we feel God leading us today, doubts and fears are probably still present. Yet, here we have Moses and Aaron are still trusting God in spite of those doubts. And now the battle of Yahweh can truly begin. But we're actually going to start to land the plane here today. We're not really going to look into the ten plagues. Um, and I, even though that makes great fodder for Ridley Scott films or DreamWorks, um, I think that the ten plagues tend to get sensationalized a lot. In fact, Exodus rarely even refers to them as plagues, which is interesting. It's only really in chapter 9 when God sends a literal plague of sickness on the Egyptians' livestock that it refers to it as a plague. Instead, the story call, tends to call them more as signs or wonders. See, a plague is just a sickness, but a sign actually points to something beyond itself. This story does get sensationalized, and retellings tend to make us forget that the people in this account are humans just like us, with doubts and struggles, and though they see God working, it can be hard for them to accept their role in his plan. It can be hard for them to accept their calling. But before I close, I do just want to address one major thing when it comes to the ten signs that Yahweh performs before against Egypt. So Nathan is going to be covering the final sign, as he generously said before, um, the death of the firstborn. So I'm thankful that that chapter has passed over me, and I don't have to cover it with blood or without. Um, but with the remaining nine signs, there is still a question of how is it fair for Yahweh to do this to the people of Egypt? And to that, I have three thoughts that have helped me as I've wrestled with this passage. The first is that this story takes place in a completely different time and culture than our own, and their view of justice is very different. Back then, an eye for an eye truly was a valid way of making things right. You kill my camel, I'll take yours. You know, the action of justice directly correlated to the crime. And so it is no surprise that the same Hebrew verb used to describe the Egyptian beating the Hebrew foreman or the Egyptian that Moses sees beating the Hebrew slave is the same verb used when Yahweh says that he will strike Egypt. Essentially, God is saying, fine, I've waited long enough. If you continue to abuse and strike my people, I will strike back. Now, I think this is tough for us as uh, Mennonites with our pacifism to accept, in that, and that's okay. Um, but I would encourage you to read the story in a word-for-word translation and notice how often the word strike is used, particularly in reference to Moses' staff. And note how the signs tend to be something that causes the life of the Egyptians to be harder. And we see that it's only after Pharaoh removes the straw from the bricks, making it more difficult for the Hebrews to meet their daily quota, only after this does Yahweh strike Egypt with signs, making their life harder. It's as if that was the final straw. This becomes especially clear when you look at the very first plague where the Nile is changed to blood and the author takes time to say, 
So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink because they could not drink from the water of the Nile. Oddly, it's not the Hebrews who are doing this extra work. No, it's the Egyptians who are having to find a way around the problem. They have no straw to make their bricks. Additionally, what brings my pacifist heart solace is that when we look to the New Testament and we see Jesus, he's taking the strikes and beatings of the Romans and the religious leaders, and we see that he does not retaliate, but instead cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus shows that water does not need to be turned to blood, but instead can be turned to wine. And secondly, every time Pharaoh seeks out Moses and asks for relief from the plague, Yahweh hears, and Mo- uh, hears Moses and he relents. Even though Yahweh and Moses both know that Pharaoh does not plan to release the people, he has still humbled himself to the point of asking for relief, and for Yahweh that is enough. Yahweh removes the frogs, the flies, the hail, and the locusts, all at Pharaoh's request. Yahweh is not about torturing the Egyptians, compounding sign upon sign, and in fact, in the sign of the hailstones, Yahweh specifically provides a way of escape, not just for the Israelites, but the Egyptians. In chapter 9, we see, Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. So now send word, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to, to safety. Every person and animal that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. Everyone among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of Yahweh hurried to bring his servants and his livestock into the house. But everyone who did not pay regard to the word of Yahweh left his servants and his livestock in the field. And this, to me, is no doubt just a mini foreshadowing of what we'll be looking at next week. A mini Passover where those who recognize Yahweh's power will find safety if they follow his direction, take shelter, and trust in him. And lastly, this is not the end of the story for Egypt. Nor is it the beginning. In fact, the reason why the Israelites are in Egypt to begin with, if you've read the story, is because a descendant of Abraham years ago named Joseph found himself as a slave in Egypt. But remember that God promised that through Abraham's descendants, blessing might come to the nations. That includes Egypt. God's spirit rested so strongly on Joseph that everything that he did was blessed. And eventually he was able to use his wisdom to work his way all the way up to being second in command of Egypt and saved Egypt and the surrounding nations from a huge famine. Because of Joseph, this Hebrew was able to save the lives of of many, many people. And this is Yahweh's intention for Egypt. Blessing, not curse. And we get a glimmer of this in the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 19, verses 19 to 25. So I'm just going to close with this prophecy, um, and I'll just read it all the way through. It says, On that day there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a memorial stone to Yahweh beside its border. And it will become a sign and a witness of Yahweh of armies in the land of Egypt, for they will cry out to Yahweh because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will save them. So Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know Yahweh on that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to Yahweh and perform it. And Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so they will return to Yahweh and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And on that day there will be a road from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria 
and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And on that day, Israel will be third party to Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of armies has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are a God who accepts us in spite of our doubts and and our failings, and you draw us to yourself. And God, I thank you so much that you were not done with Egypt and that we can see in the story that you have plans for the nations and not just Israel, that you've brought us into your family and that we look forward to that day when the tree of life's leaves will bring healing to the nations. And we thank you, God, that you are a God of restoration and that in Jesus we see that, yeah, you do change water into wine and that there is celebration and joy and healing that can be found with you. We pray your blessing upon us this week and that we might represent you and bear your name. In your name, amen.